Pete, did you used to watch the TV show Cops? You know, I watched a little bit of it. Like, I, like I'm sure everybody's seen a little bit of it. But once you've seen a guy like you know take his, his shirt off and, and jump a fence and run through somebody's backyard, you, you've basically seen Cops. So, um, yeah, I've seen it. Um, and it's part of the grammar, I, I think, actually, of, of nonfiction storytelling. It was one of the early reality shows, actually. That and I think the real world, maybe. Um, and yeah, of course, everybody brings up cops when you know they they uh, hear about our project. So sure. But from from the few times that you did watch cops yep. to now um, <coughs> spending what is it two and a half years with mm -hmm. the um, Oakland almost Police, three years, almost three years, mm -hmm. okay, and doing probably ride-alongs. How do you see cops, which is sort of this glorified, but also haha, look at this kind of thing when it's really You've, you've been on ride-alongs, you've, you've had your life basically on the line well, filming. You know, one of the things that we try to articulate when we're trying to get access, because a big part of nonfiction filmmaking is about access. You, you, you can't write these stories, you have to um, document them, and in order to document them, particularly in, a, in an institution, you got to get in there. And part of, you know, the pitch um, <coughs> is to say that we're not just going to drop in, parachute in, parachute out, uh, find the most dramatic moments and exploit them and, and, and sort of um, distort the reality of the context in which that really gives this place a meaning. So if you, if you think about policing in America, it's not that the most dramatic moments that are the most meaningful, it's the context around those moments. And the only way that you can get to that is by really committing to time and, and doing that long, deep dive into, um, you know, what does it mean, you, you know, when you see these cops dealing with violence or you, domestic violence, or you see a cop chasing somebody who's robbed a store, a young, a young African-American kid, who is that kid? Where does that kid come from? Um, did that kid graduate high school? You know, um, though that context for us is everything. And so where cops um, ends, we begin. Basically, I mean, we do have there is action in the movie. It's not, it's not, you know, it, it, there's quite a bit of action <laughs> in it actually, but we also take a deeper dive in, in trying to help you understand, um, you know, and unpack in its full three dimensions these men and women who really are being, you know, maligned and criticized, rightfully so, in, in our society for um, being detached from you know, the consequences and accountability of their actions. And, and so I think that was part of the sort of impetus for, for making the film in the first place. So I know it's part of a trilogy and you're, you've yet to make uh, the third one, mm -hmm. but what was the, the driving force, um, well, no pun intended, but to, <laughs> to make the force, what was the main day that you just looked at the story of what was going on with the Oakland Police Department, I think in 2013, right? Yeah. So, there was a different story at that time, and I know mm -hmm. things have evolved, but yeah. um, what was the reason at that time? Well, when we first, when we came off of our first film, The Waiting Room, which was the first in a trilogy of um, films looking at the relationship between public institutions and community in one American city, Oakland, California, um, I was sitting for breakfast with my executive producer, John Els, who also I studied with at, in film school. He was my mentor, and he sort of taught me you know, everything I know about, um, much of what I know about documentary film. and. He was saying, "Hey, we should take a look at, you know, the police department here. You know, there hadn't been a major American documentary set inside a 
urban police department probably since the, the police tapes, Alan and Susan Raymond's film set in, in, in New York. And I mean, there have been a lot of reality shows, cops and so forth, First 48 and all these, the, these reality shows, but like a real deep dive into an American police department hadn't been made in quite some time. And it was at a moment when there were so many questions about you know, the, the, the culture and the institution itself and um, how, how it intersected with the matters of race and justice. And, and so this was also a, a police department that was in an active process of reform. They had been forced to reform due to a civil rights case in 2000, the Riders case, which was these cops were going out at night you know, um, violating people's civil rights, planting drugs, you know, harassing them, beating them in some cases, and that resulted in, in a negotiated settlement agreement that um, required them to change. And so we, were, we picked up with them just as they were getting ready to complete uh, um, all the, the requirements of reform. They were in what, like the 12th of yeah, the Yeah, like when years. we started that, they were in their 12th year, and the, and the chief, Sean Went, who you see in the film, he was brought in to basically close the deal. Like, all right, let's, like, we're almost done. There's a couple more things here. One of them was um, racial profiling that we need to get a handle on, and he was brought in to, to do that. <coughs> so how did you contact the Oakland Police Department? I mean, I know Jonna Watson mm -hmm. in the film talks about working with you, but initially yeah. you were turned down? Yeah, well, we weren't turn, turned down per se, but we, we definitely didn't make the ask right away with, for, with Jonna, you know, because once you make that ask, that's it. Like once you make the ask, it's easy to say no. You know, so what, what you like to do when you're trying to get access to institutions, I teach this to students all the time, is you, you know, really sort of build, start to build support around the periphery of that institution. Find people who you know, understand what you're trying to do, who you, you know are supporters, who can start telling that narrative. So when, when the time comes to make that ask, and those people start at talking, and you know who these guys are? You, you know, there's already some, some uh, a foundation of support. And so the wait, when the waiting room came out, it was such a, it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, it got shortlisted for an Academy Award. It won a Spirit Award. It was, you know, nominated for a Gotham. And it, it was really kind of a pride of the city. And so the mayor brought me, I was a guest of the, at the State of the City Address. And she said, she's introduced me and said, these are the type of artists that we need to support. And the U.S. Attorney for Northern California was there, Melinda Haig. And, and she had seen the film and she was a huge supporter and she was like, what are you doing next? And I said, I'd like to try to get into the police department. I'm not sure how I would do that. And so she said, well, let me see if I can help. You know? So people like that, you know, we, we started telling our story, like this is what we want to do, this is our intent. And we were nervous because it, well, you weren't just trying to get into a police department, it was a police department that was under federal watch. And so we were thinking, oh man, we gotta get like like Obama has to sign off on it. Like, what? Like, how deep is this going to go? You know, and, and we weren't really sure. So, but we we um, a lot of it was the waiting room. How well that film did. How much the community loved that film. How much they valued um, what that added. You know, to the national conversation around access to healthcare. And I think that that played a pretty significant role. So, when you were planning the film, I understand that you prefer verite style instead yeah. of like the talking head sort of uh, documentaries. Were you concerned for your own safety? Had you ever seen anyone shot or stabbed in your own life, like, out, you know, traveling in the Bay Area? You know, I've been around some pretty hairy situations, you know, and part of my story, you know, um, was intersecting with law enforcement when I was in college. You know, I got in trouble 
I got arrested and I ended up serving a year in prison on a drug charge. And so, um, but I didn't have the experience that a lot of young African Americans have. And I don't know if it's because I'm, I'm a mixed race, I'm lighter skinned, the way I dress, the way I talk, the way I carry myself, I'm not really sure. But the most memorable, the first you know, memorable experience I had with law enforcement was them basically saving my life by intersecting me at a very sort of, um, where I could have gone either way, you know, where I, where I could have gone either way. But when I was in prison, you know, I met, first day I was in prison, somebody got their throat cut, you know, and I was around young black men just like me, but from the other side of the tracks. And so I had a very unique kind of coming of age. This is when I was in 21. And this was, you know, um, right at that moment where you're starting to sort of come into your identity. And, um, but I did grow up in the suburbs of Boston and I went to private school and I went to Howard University. And so I, I've always carried with me these diverse experiences in my storytelling, um, but the reality is that these cops, what I experienced is just a fraction of what people who grew up in places like o Oakland or West Baltimore or the Bronx experience on a day-to-day -day basis every day, all day, surrounded by poverty, violence, crime, where it's just sort of um, par for the course to see a friend shot down in front of you. And uh, I was just having a conversation with one of the, off um, the cop who appears in, in the film, um, Captain Armstrong, and you know, who, who lost his brother um, when he was 13. You know, and so the, these, these were, so he's from Oakland, you know, so the, these are um, experiences that um, the average person just doesn't have any conception of. And um, so when I was out with the officers, I'm, I'm wearing body armor, they're wearing body armor, this is the environment that you're, that you're working in, you know, this is their job, I'm a filmmaker, my job is to document, but immediately in that, in that space, I'm thrust into their point of view in a very visceral way because I'm feeling on some level the same feeling that they are, maybe even elevated because I don't have a weapon, <laughs> you know, I, I have nothing, to protect myself other than them, you know? So it, it really shifted, you know, as someone who's aggressively open-minded, and I went into this process not wanting to, you know, go after the police and try to like, you know, muckrake and find bad stuff, you know, in the department, but I also went in there really guarding against getting too close to them emotionally and being too sympathetic with them because I understood that this was a moment when people had a lot of anger, rightfully so, and distrust toward the police and wanted the truth to be told about what was happening in our police department. And so my job as a documentarian was to try to capture as close as I could the truth of what was happening in this, in this environment. Speaking of which, um, you talk about being open-minded, and most people from the Bay Area would probably consider themselves that way, and I know there's a very progressive mindset there. Uh -huh. But you say people saw you get out of the police car mm -hmm. with the camera, and somehow you were trolled on Twitter, and I was just wondering if yeah. you could talk about being a filmmaker, yeah. trying to make something, and what were they saying to you? Well, it's difficult. You know, and I, I'm trying to, you know, I try to reconcile this. My experience, it was flipped. Because what happened was the people who were being open and transparent and welcoming of me were the, were the cops. And the people that were being aggressive and prejudiced and, and, and um, 
hurtful to, toward me with the progressives, many of whom were my friends. So, you know, but my friends understood. They, they, they knew me, they knew my story, and so when I'd see them, it was like an odd sort of cognitive dissonance. I'm getting out the police car, they're there protesting the police. I think they understood what I was trying to do. A lot of people did not even attempt to understand what I was doing. They never spoke to me, they never asked me questions, they were taking my picture, they were trying to spin a narrative on social media about I was an agent for propaganda for the, for the police department. And that was incredibly um, frustrating for me, you know. And I, I had to constantly sort of challenge myself um, to not slip into a mindset of, of, of being resentful of that. It was, it, you know, I think there's still, I think I was impacted by it in ways that I'll, I'll, will, will have always cha changed me. And, um, but one of the things that um, I know, because I know a lot of people in whatever you want to call it, Black Lives Matter, the protest movement, who are fighting for social justice, and that's a value that I hold very close to my heart because of my personal experience where I come from. My dad went to school with Martin Luther King. I grew up in the civil rights, you know, I, grew, I was born in 1968. and so. Um, but you work harder to understand people when you know them, when you have a connection to them. And I think that's something that we've lost in this country is the ability to, oftentimes when we're upset with each other, we're upset with people that we don't really know who they are. And I think that's certainly the case with, with cops. And um, the only experience a lot of African Americans have is being profiled by a cop or being talked down to by a cop or being harassed by a cop. And that you just carry that with you. And so we, we, as filmmakers, we had a really tricky, uh, particularly as a black filmmaker, I had a very tricky um, job, which is to somehow thread the needle and respect that reality while also trying to hold the truth of these officers in a meaningful way because they, they see themselves much differently than the public sees them. They see themselves as protecting black lives every day. You know, so it's a, it's, it's, it's a really profound you know, um, gulf that we find ourselves in, in terms of, you know, where people are and how people see each other. And um, we were capturing that. That's what we were sort of in the process of capturing. How did you get permission to go on these ride-alongs? Because that footage is, is so valuable. Yeah. Um, how did you get access to that part? We, we just asked. We, we, we definitely, like we said, we want to understand what it's like to be a cop. And, and you, know, you know, a lot of what being a cop is is just responding to the radio call. You know, like, because there's so many radio calls. It's shocking that the, the volume of 911 calls that this department gets. And it's only 750 officers in a city of half a million people. So we, we definitely wanted to get that sense, that visceral sense of, um, you know, the officers just doing their job. They're, they're sort of in... It's a little bit more like the waiting room of, of, you know, minus the politics, you know, what's an average day like? You know, what does an average day look like to you? And so the only way you're going to get that is by getting inside that, that car and, um, just, and following them going call to call to call. So we, we, we did a, quite a bit of that. Um, uh, initially, though, it was like all protests because, like, we started filming right around the time that... Um, you know, the decision was made not to indict Dar um, Darren Wilson in the shooting of Mike, Michael Brown. So that, that sparked weeks of protest in, in Oakland. And um, so that's, that's all we were filming for the first several weeks. So you talked about 
some of the response from the activist community toward you on social media. I just wanted to read something that I saw on the Force IMDb page. Um, and a woman had reviewed the film and she said, while I do believe that Nix allows the OPD to display their good side, he did not let them hide their dirt either. When emotions run high, it's difficult to stand back and show both sides fairly, but I think he did just that. Mm -hmm. You know, that was our intent and I think to, you know, some people cannot, uh, it's, 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 it's remarkable because the film is a really devastating indictment of this department and of the sort of what's broken within the institution, the moral failure that ultimately occurred at this department. And I, and I told them going in, I said, you know, um, I'm going to be fair to you, but I'm also going to tell the story that I see, that I experience, that I, that I witness. And, you know, humanizing someone doesn't mean necessarily making them look good. It means revealing them in their full three dimensions, and that's what we do. Like you know, that's our that's the whole value proposition of of openhood is to sort of get to that authenticity through visceral observational storytelling. And um, but the funny thing is, like you know, we've screened this thing to lots of audiences and different types of people, and some people still take issue with with um, still perceive the film as a pro cop film. And that's because the anger and the distrust and, and the, the pain that people are carrying is so deep that any step toward um, showing a cop in a, in a positive light is, is seen as, as um, some, some degree or some, some shade of, of propaganda. And, you know, there, there, there is a spectrum of sort of resistance to, to the police in this country that ranges from um, the sort of all lives matter pro-cop people to abolitionists who believe that we should remove all police from our communities and replace it with a completely new paradigm and model for community and public safety. And so I think woven through that is some, some degree of performance that bubbles up and, and it's very difficult sometimes to um, like, like in other words, no moderation. It's, it's whose side are you on? Define your values, articulate those values without compromise. And I think when when you know you have a balanced, a fair, a fair and balanced approach, that is perceived as a compromise by by many. And so we've had to we've had to respond to that, and that has come out in 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 some of the reviews of the film. Not many. Many of the reviews reflect the comment that you've just read there, but there have been some that have been more critical um, of the balanced approach. Like, this doesn't require a balanced approach. This requires incisive, um, you know, um, an, an incisive takedown. And so that's something that, it's just a reality. It's just a reality right now in our sort of public consciousness around this issue. I think the beginning of the film is much different from the middle of the film and toward the end when for me I was you know, it felt like a punch in the gut so I, I, yeah. I saw it going one way and I, I was drawn in but I for me mm -hmm. and this is just my experience yeah didn't didn't see it in that way um, knowing that you started out with one intention for the film and then things changed and right. without I guess giving away too much right. how was that because it was a drastic turn of events <laughs> 
Well, narratively, it was an incredibly challenging film to put together in the edit, in the edit room, and we had many, many, many meetings. And our, our model is an interesting sort of model. Like, I'm the director, I also shoot, and then I have a producer, Linda Davis, and then I have a, my editor also does sound. So Lawrence LaRue is the, and he's also a producer. And so that's our team, primarily. And then John Els, who's the executive producer, he also did, did some shooting and and John's a sort of legendary documentary photographer and, and, and director. And um, and then we had you know, Sean Havey, who was our associate producer, and he's kind of a jack-of-all-trades, kind of fixer, um, problem solver. So it was a very small team, and we made the film sort of like, um, we shot the film consecutive with editing the film. So we were shooting, we'd shoot. If we had a day down shooting, we'd start putting stuff together. And as we went, everything was starting to change in the country. Black Lives Matter was emerging. It was becoming much more difficult for us to imagine a film coming out that was sympathetic toward the police. Not that that was our intent, but what we were observing early on was a lot of success at that department. A lot of the reforms were working. They were making progress. It was a, uh, the department was a model for reform. And in our minds, we were thinking, <laughs> how, how is this film going to sit in when at the same time this is what we're seeing we're seeing all these incidences on our Facebook feeds Eric Gardner and, and, and Tamir Rice you know Mike Brown like all these things were happening one after the other after the other and it, we were really worried actually like like that we were going to appear to be tone deaf and so we constantly were asking ourselves what are we doing? How are we framing the story? You know, um, it was a lot of, we cut a lot of versions of this film. At one point I tried narrating the film myself from the perspective of a black person who's trying to make a film that impacts the African-American community. And, and um, in, the, in the end we decided on the approach that we did, which was a two-year uh, you know, window into a department attempting to reform at this moment in time, which was a, a seminal moment in the, in the history of policing, but also one of, probably the most dramatic moment in the history of the OPD. Like, no, no question about that. And, um, and the, the film is a result of that framing. And, you know, this is a two-year journey, um, and it, it involves lots of twists and turns. The, the last, which is particularly dramatic, and did feel like a punch in the gut to us as well, because it, it just came out of, it came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere, and so that's how we that's how we rendered it in the film. It's a sharp turn in the film, and but that's exactly how how we experienced it. I thought it was effective too how you had the headlines of these various publications about the different turns, and mm -hmm. I, th I thought that was um, just a way to sort of just let it be and and show it without any. I mean, these were real headlines that I just thought that was very effective. Yeah, and we really. We, we made that choice because we didn't want to try to interpret and editorialize what was happening, but there was a whole group of in, uh, journalists and investigative reporters who were tracking this thing and trying to make sense of it. And so that, that was how the public was experiencing it. That's how we were experiencing it, and we wanted to sort of allow, it also allowed us to add a little bit of context to, to the material to sort of ground the audience uh, a little bit better. How long was the typical filming day, and what were you choosing to film, and what were you choosing to, to leave out? It, it changed. Like in the beginning, it was protest, protest, protest. You know, um, some, some days we were out there 12, 14. It depend, depend, depend on um, you know, who we were following. We were kind of casting in the beginning, trying to find 
officers who we would follow, you know, for the for the whole film. One of the original qu central questions of the film was who becomes a cop and why, and how does the job change you? So we were, um, you know, just hanging out with lots of different people, um, but it, you know, the the it, doctors. I mean, cops like doctors. Um, it never stops, right? So they, they, they tend to go on like 12, 12 hour shifts. And so that was fairly typical um, that we'd just be out and you know, some nights were just like slow and boring and then other, other nights were just like bang, 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 bang. We're like 12, you would go by and you'd be like, you'd have hours of footage in the camera and you, you, you couldn't believe it, that, that that amount of time had, had elapsed and that was more the rule than, than the exception and we were in lots of different environments from you know doing ride-alongs we did I mean the most painful thing were the city council hearings because we were just like I mean that was like some like I mean I grew up in the black church so I, I'm, I'm used to like you know but it's like people testifying you know, like getting up there like long lines of community voicing their concerns about the issues and we would tend to go to these city council meetings when they were when an issue, a policing issue was on the docket, we'd go to see where, where is the community at on this and, and how, how, are the, how is the chief going to respond or how is the mayor going to respond and we were trying to like build this, this, this sort of an environment of, and a lot of that material ended up not making it into the film when everything changed in the end we had to recut the whole film but we filmed tons of that stuff. Boring as hell. <laughs> like, um, and then we also, um, a lot of press conferences, but these are the pieces that you have to, you have to gather, you know, all the pieces um, to ultimately to sort of have options um, because they're all um, building blocks for the story. We've seen some behind the scenes footage of you filming with a, quite a large camera. Mm -hmm. What were you using or did it vary from time to time? We were using a, a Sony F5, which is, um, it's a bit of a cinema camera. A lot of like indie filmmakers doing narrative features will use that. Um, it's it's better for like setups where you're putting the camera like on a tripod or you know on a, on a Steadicam or um, on a dolly or something. But it's a really good camera in low light, and we we knew we were going to be doing a lot of shooting at night, and so we tested a lot of cameras, and that one performed the best, at least in my opinion. And I shoot my own films, so I'm very kind of particular um, about about that um, and then we shot on a Sony Alpha 7S which is a small DSLR camera for all the interior car stuff POV stuff so we had suction mounts so that you could really sort of be there in the car with these officers as they're speeding through the streets we wanted to give the audience kind of a visceral feeling of that and that camera is also extremely good in low light so that was those were just kind of a coincidence they're were, they were both Sony cameras we should have gotten some money from Sony on, <laughs> on the film but um, you know, I thought the film actually looked great, and you know, I, I'm a cinematographer, so I was kind of going for. I wanted the film to, um, you know, just be immersive and beautiful. I mean, that, that was part of part of my goal. And that's very difficult to do when you're on the fly, when you're also trying to capture reality. You know, right. you can't because you can't stop. You have to sort of like kind of have it pre pre planned, and serendipity plays a role in that. You have to get lucky sometimes, right? So. Did you use any lighting equipment? No. No? Wow. Never, yeah. I, I don't use lights in, in any of my work. I use natural light. I look for opportunities to introduce light into um, 
into the scene, like one of the tricks that we used um, in, in, in the interiors was the cops have this like laptop that they use for all, like to track all their calls. And so we would use that as a little fill. Sometimes we'd open it up and that would cast a little soft glow inside the, um, the light, all practical lighting. Sometimes we'd use the, the dome light, the overhead, but we didn't bring in any of our own lights um, because you just can't, you can't manage that. When you're, particularly when you're running, in a documentary, anyway, it's hard to do that, but when you're running around with cops, sometimes you're wearing a bulletproof vest, you're in very hairy situations, so you have to pick up and go sometimes, and so you can't be having you know, equipment and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's how we did it. So last question, Pete. Coming off the success of your documentary, The Waiting Room, how did you want to build on that with The Force? Yeah, so, you know, with The Waiting Room, um, what, one of the things that was exciting about The Waiting Room was, was creating this immersive experience for people, like, you know, trying to really immerse them in a world without, you know, in, in verite. We actually had a little bit of voiceover that, that we used in the film and with, 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 but it was confined, you know, for the most part to this hospital waiting room. I mean, everything was like in close up. It was very almost like, you know, like, like, uh, like, um, uh, you know, intimate and confined in this in interior space. Whereas with, with the police movie, I felt like, man, we can break out and we can see the city, get more visual. And as a cinematographer, that's just incredibly exciting to be able to sort of break out of that claustrophobic kind of feeling, even though it was really effective, you know, for the waiting room, that claustrophobic feeling, because that's what it feels like to be in a hospital and feeling in, in a waiting room. Um, this film gave me the opportunity to really kind of stretch out and sort of, you know, um, get visual with the film. And that, that for me is something that, you know, excites me. And also we made the decision that we were not gonna have any voiceover. That was gonna be pure, you know, cinema verite. And we had a little bit of text cards in the beginning just to contextualize it in the news articles, but everything else was um, direct cinema. And, you know, for me, for my money, that creates the most visceral um, experience that, that in my mind, really gets you closer to a truth. Even though that may result in some ambiguity, it, it creates that feeling of closeness and authenticity that I think gives the audience a thrill. Uh, you know, when there's action and when there's emotion, um, it just draws the emotion out deeper than, than um, I mean, there are different styles that are appropriate for different subject matters. For, for my films, that immersion that closeness, that, that authenticity is really key um, to the story.